Long ago, I pressured my shy 12-year-old daughter into auditioning for our Homeschool Network's junior production of Hamlet. Boy, was she resistant. But she got a part, and I can honestly say the experience permanently enhanced her life and mine. Today, we're talking with the delightful Kevin O'Brien about why your kids should learn speech, debate, and drama. Welcome to Homeschooling Saints, the podcast that helps you create the homeschool you love for the people you love. Our host is Lisa Maladnik, a Catholic life coach, TV host, best-selling author, and an instructor at Homeschool Connections. Hi, I'm Lisa Maladnik. We're discussing why your kids should learn speech, debate, and drama. And today's guest is the extraordinary Kevin O'Brien. If you're not already a fan, you're about to become one. Kevin O'Brien is the founder and artistic director of Upstage Productions and the Theater of the Word Incorporated, which I was very blessed to bring to my parish years ago. Just beautiful, beautiful work. It's a Catholic theater company which tours the country evangelizing through drama. That's Theater of the Word. Kevin has been touring the United States performing his own plays for nearly 30 years He is booked regularly at 24 wineries in nine states, performing his own brand of interactive comedies to a very loyal and devoted fan base. Although an atheist at an early age, Kevin's experiences with the dramatic arts began a conversion process that, with the help of the writings of G.K. Chesterton, eventually brought him into the Catholic Church. Kevin hosts the television series The Theater of the Word on EWTN and can also be seen on episodes of EWTN's The Apostle of Common Sense, The Quest for Shakespeare, and The Journey Home. Kevin also portrays J.R.R. Tolkien on several Tolkien specials hosted by Joseph Pierce. In addition, Kevin has performed and produced over 40 audio books and is the only person in history to play every part in a Shakespeare play, which he did for his audio readings of The Merchant of Venice and Macbeth for Ignatius Press. His recording of The Innocence of Father Brown, another great Chesterton story, was a winner of the Four Word Best Audiobook of the Year Award in 2009. He's also a writer and regular contributor to the St. Austin Review and Gilbert Magazine. He has written two books, The Church of the Kevin and An Actor Bows, and has contributed to the books My Name is Lazarus and The Persons of the Gospel. Kevin teaches several online courses for Catholic homeschool students at Homeschool Connections. I'm so honored to be uh, a co-faculty member with this amazing person, For more information for sort of all things Kevin and lots of really cool resources, visit grunky.com. That's www.grunky.com, and that will be in our show notes. Kevin, it is so neat to see you again after all these years via video. Uh, thanks, Lisa. Yeah, it's great to be here. And I, I know we're recording the video, but you have audio podcast listeners, so right. we will assume that they can't see us. Right. We may post the videos eventually, so everybody pray for that. Send in your cards and letters, because uh, it's <laughs> awfully fun to see Kevin. He's very, lots of fun and has a green screen going on behind him, too. Um, but anyway, so welcome. And this is kind of a cool topic, too. Um, step us into a little bit how the dramatic arts and your experiences as, as a creative person helped draw you out of atheism. That's really interesting. 
Sure. Well, and that is the main story I tell in my book, An Actor Bows, which is subtitled Showbiz God and the Meaning of Life. So it's about my rather bizarre career in show business. But (laughs) briefly, what really started my conversion, because I was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist back when it wasn't popular to be one. So I was a trendsetter in those days. And And I really thought that I could pretty much do anything on my own. But what I learned with acting was that no matter how well I learned my lines or knew my blocking or researched the characters, I could give a technically perfect but uninteresting performance. So for it really to be compelling, both my fellow actors on stage and I would somehow have to do all the hard work and then abandon the work in a sense, and open ourselves up to an inspiration. Really, there was, there was something beyond us that was intangible that had, to, that had to enter what we were doing on stage. Otherwise, the show could be good enough, but it wouldn't be the sort of thing that would draw the audience in. It wouldn't really come to life. And I think that happens, that can happen not only with artistic works, say musicians probably know, what I'm talking about, but also something like uh, even in sports. I think you have to be in the zone, but you have to be, well, there's a whole book. There's a book called Zen and the Art of Archery. And even though it focuses on Zen Buddhism, it's true when it comes to the fact that in that book, the archer has to do all this work to prepare how to shoot the bow, how to hit the target, everything. He does meticulous work. And then in the moment of firing, he lets go and he abandons, he doesn't just physically let go of the bowstring, he lets go of his control of the situation and that helps him be a better archer. And that I think extends it, but and as, as a Christian, you would say, he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That if we're clutching and if we're trying to control everything we're doing and we don't trust in divine providence, which is hard to do, then we really can't um, allow the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to move us. Uh, But of course, we have to do the work too. So we have to do everything to prepare. And then in the moment of performance, and I say performance, but it could be maybe you've got, maybe you have to talk to a family member and you're you know it might not go well. Maybe you have to talk about a problem in your family, or maybe you have to meet with your boss and you're not looking forward to it. Well, you prepare for it, you think about it, you pray for it, you know what you have to say. And then in the moment, it's also, as we're told in scripture, you know, you will be called before um, tribunals and don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in the moment. And that really, I think, applies to so much of what we do. We ultimately have to let go when we're acting, not only acting on stage, but acting as human beings. When we perform any act, there's a kind of abandonment and we have to say, okay, okay, God, help me with this and take over and get me the rest of the way. And so I think that that's what I started to learn as an actor on stage. And then eventually, especially through people like C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc and my readings, I eventually then was blessed to come into the Catholic Church. And that was almost 20 years ago now that I converted. Okay. So what what year was that? I know I'm class of 1992, I like to say. Uh, So 20 years ago, so about 
what was that? 80? It was actually two, 2000 for me. I'm in my 20th About year. About 2000. Oh, but wow. one of the things that, you know, Chesterton meant a lot to me because he really was the one. I had been reading Lewis, so I became a generic Christian or a mere Christian through C.S. Lewis. But Lewis kept mentioning this guy, G.K. Chesterton. So I started <laughs> to read Lewis's favorite author who helped convert C.S. Lewis. And then I was astonished that he was, I thought, even a better writer than C.S. Lewis. And I thought he must have been Lewis's contemporary, but he wrote most of his stuff. I mean, he was at least a generation older than Lewis. He could have been Lewis's father. So, um, but Chesterton meant a lot to me. And then at random, you might say, or it seemed to be at random, my wife and I were received into the church. We, we went through uh, private instruction. We didn't do RCIA. So we didn't come in at the Easter vigil. We came in on July 30th, 2000. We were both received. We had been baptized. We were both received. We were later confirmed because the bishop couldn't be there, but that's when we first received the Eucharist. That's when we first became Catholic. And then I later learned that G.K. Chesterton was received into the Catholic Church on July 30th, 1922. So yeah, it happened to be the exact same day and I didn't even know it. That is so, so cool. That's a great person. Yeah, I mean, there are a decent number of people out there kind of trying to get his cause for canonization opened. And I've just recently received my little prayer card on him. And um, yeah, I mean, I love the coincidences. As soon as I started to delve back into his writings, I started to have interesting GK coincidences as well. Really? Oh, that's very interesting. Very, very cool. You need to keep note of that. Stuff like that, I think, helps, helps us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you, um, you had a progression from noticing that you were inspired, that there was something beyond yourself as an artist that lifted things to a place that you could not control, you could only allow, you could step into it, you could, I guess I'm using my own words, but cooperate with it, swim in it, be a part of it, but that you didn't generate it yourself. But you had to prepare yourself. You had to have technique and discipline, and you had to work really hard to bring yourself to that moment. Really interesting. Was there a particular moment or a particular sense of awareness where you started to be lifted outside of your there's no God into, hmm? Yes. Well, uh, the I had been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis, and this was 1997, and um, I was walking in a cemetery at night, and the sun was setting, which I like to do that because it's um, you can be alone, you can think. And I was by the chapel in the cemetery, and I saw the silhouette of the chapel and the cross on top of the chapel, and I was almost praying. I hadn't prayed since I was a child because I became an atheist at age nine, believe it or not. So it had been, by this point, I must have been, so I was 36, 37. So I hadn't prayed for all those years. And I'm almost praying at that point and I'm walking around and I'm seeing the sunset and the silhouette. And I'm saying to myself, if this stuff is true, because I loved what Lewis was saying in his books, if this stuff is true, I cannot just keep it on the shelf is just another book. I've got to live this. If this is true, I have to change my life. I have to turn my life around. And as I'm thinking that and almost praying, because I wasn't quite sure about God, I see a silhouette of this huge flying thing above me that comes down and lands on top of the top of the cross 
at the chapel. And I'm seeing this all in silhouette because the sunset is behind it. And I couldn't tell. It was a very large bird. I knew that much. And then I saw it turn its head and I saw the ear tufts. So I knew it was an owl. Well, I've been hiking all my life. We used to live in the country, but it's rare actually to see owls. You hear them a lot at night, but you usually don't see them. And there it was. And owls are very big, at least, you know, full grown owls are big. And so, uh, I mean, they're probably bigger than any other bird, really. So there it was. And now I thought, well, what would this mean symbolically? Well, the owl often represents wisdom. So I thought, well, it, symbolically, this coincidence would seem to mean that wisdom top, wisdom sits atop the cross, that if you really want wisdom, you have to go to the cross. So I count that as my conversion because then I knew, oh, okay. Then I started praying and and I said, you know, you're going to have to help me, God. We, we had some financial problems at the time. And I said, you're going to have to help me. We need, we need help, especially in the summer, which is our slow season. And the very next day, I got a call from a um, venue that wanted to book us to perform uh, in the summers uh, at their theater in Kansas. So that was also sort of the capstone where I thought, oh, well, here, I have an immediate answer to my prayer within 24 hours. And then I sort of sheepishly told my wife, um, I think there's something going on, and I think um, I might be a Christian. What are you talking about? What? Are you, what? You, what? Because I was never, never came anywhere close. And then we started going to church, and we ended up, I mean, this is all in my book. We, we had a wonderful experience of we, were, we went to a, a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, which is very, I would say, fundamentalist. Then we left them and we went to an Episcopalian church, which was very far on the left, and then eventually settled in the middle, which is the Catholic church. And, and that was uh, when we came in in 2000. So that's, that's the story in a nutshell. I love to listen to people who have a real passion for a subject. It's so exciting. It's so alive. Um, it, sound, it seems like just listening to your life that you're, because you're a very passionate teacher, you teach a lot of really fabulous courses at Homeschool Connections. Um, take us, well, we want to hear what are the benefits, obviously, of this kind of training for our kids. That's, that's where we're headed. Um, but you went from learning from the arts to then teaching the arts. Like you took that passion for what you were learning into that teaching environment. Why do you love teaching homeschooled kids? Well, many of them are really smart. And some of my high school students, I think, are doing college-level work even in my classes. Um, and sometimes it's hard for me to keep in mind that, that they're just teenagers, you know, they're just kids because some of them really are advanced and have read a lot of great stuff. So I love that. I love the fact that the parents are the primary educators. So for instance, I mean, sometimes the parents will get worried about um, the the tests that the that my students take on Moodle. And I will say, well, if you think that the tests don't really reflect how much your student knows, because some students do well on tests and some students don't, I say to them, you're the primary educator. You can put on their transcript whatever grade you think is appropriate. You can interview your son or daughter. You can try to find out how much they're really learning. It's not up to me. I'm a resource. And Homeschool Connections is a resource with all these incredible teachers teaching these great classes. And yet the parents maintain that 
authority in their own household. And if they don't like the content of a particular course, you're not going to get bullied. You're not going to get what we used to get when we sent our kids to even Catholic parochial schools. And we'd complain, we'd say, wait a minute, this doesn't really sound like you're teaching the faith. And then, oh, they'd get an attitude and then and, and they, and they, you know, what do you know, more or less is what they'd say to us. But, you know, <laughs> we in Homeschool Connections understand that the parents are doing this because the parents are the parents and the parents want the kids to get an education that is meaningful to the kids and to the parents, and then we help with that. So that's, and I love Homeschool Connections because we can really teach whatever we want to teach in the way that we want to teach it. So we have this great latitude, and, um, you know, it really is a wonderful thing. So if people are listening to this and they've just maybe been dabbling in Homeschool Connections, I mean, there are so many courses and so many teachers, I would just encourage you to go deeper into it because it really is a wonderful organization. And as far as the very subjects we're talking about, which is debate and speech and acting, well, you know, learning speech is makes that makes kids really nervous. And if you remember, so Lisa, I imagine since you're probably not of the homeschool generation, since that's more of a thing that's happened recently, that you went to a brick and mortar, mortar school. Did you take a speech class and did you ever have to give a speech in front of people and were you scared to death and mortified and shaking in your boots? Well, I was one of those goof, goofy theater kids and we didn't have a speech or debate opportunity. It was kind of a eh, high school. Um, but when I went to college, it was required that you took a communications course and you had to get up and learn all sorts of artsy ways of relaxing into your tensions and weird things like that, right? And so that was an introduction at that level. And then I went on to do some acting for a while as a young woman. So I did, even though I was shy in high school, I was definitely one of those theater kids that couldn't wait to slap on makeup and memorize lines. Um, Good, so for yes. me, I did have that opportunity, but most kids, as far as I know, in my school did not. Well, so we're giving them the opportunity through my speech courses, and I usually will offer speech maybe every other year and debate also maybe every other year, So, uh, because it's really better to take those classes live. We do have a lot of students who take them recorded, but when you're live, then the students make the speeches, but they're not as nervous as they would be, I think, at least I hope, because they're on a web camera. They're not physically in front of the other kids. And if they do get really nervous, I try to help. I try to kind of hold their hands, so to speak, and guide them through it. But the other thing that we do in the speech course is we will read and, and or watch videos of the most famous speeches ever. We start with the Apology of Socrates, where Socrates is defending his life and his career as a philosopher. And we work our way through till the end of the course. We're watching, we'll watch, you know, Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream. We'll watch uh, Ronald Reagan tear down that wall. We'll watch these speeches that have become famous that the students really need to know. And we forget, you know, if, if someone like me, where I remember both I Have a Dream and tear down that wall, well, then I forget that you know, anybody younger than I am may not know those speeches. So we learn speech and rhetoric by introducing the students to the most famous speeches in history and then having them give. And, you know, we do one funny speech. They can do something that's kind of funny and silly. They can do another one that's more serious. So they do three speeches over the course of the semester. Debate for me, I think, is even more important because in my debate course, um, I try to 
make the students understand that you are going to debate people informally, probably not informal debates like, like, like we see uh, during the presidential season, but you will informally be debating people probably on the internet, probably for the rest of your life. And people are going to say, well, you know, why are you a Christian? Well, don't you know the church teaches such and such? And you're going to have to learn how do you engage people in a rational back and forth. You're going to have to learn how, when, when can you not really do that? Because when are people being just simply irrational and um, not willing to engage the actual issues? So we try to kind of prepare the kids for, okay, how are you going to know a subject well enough where you have to make a case for it? And how can you do that with enough communication skills to uh, pull it off? So those two courses, I think, help with communications. And then now I'm teaching acting monologues for middle schoolers. So I'm having middle schoolers learn some monologues and then I'm coaching them. And I just started that course, so we haven't really gotten into it. it remains to be seen how that's going to work. But I think it's possible for me to maybe do a little uh, acting coaching over the internet. But of course, all of that builds the confidence of the students and it also helps them learn sort of your basic verbal oral communication skills. So I think that's why it's important that I'm teaching that and that um, students might take it. So I think um, the parents should and, and certainly check And there's so that little out. of it being done in schools. I mean, I'm sure it varies from school to school, but um, that ability to stand up for the faith, to be rational, you, it's very difficult to be charitable if you're not prepared to be rational. Because when we start to get emotional, everything just goes right out the window, right? Right. And, you know, there's a connection between emotion and reason. In other words, you should be passionate about what is true. And you should be passionate about, uh, which is one of the reasons we did Theater of the Word, which is to try to bring to life the lives of these saints and to show, for instance, St. Paul's passion for Christ, which, you know, you might not pick up on that if you're just listening to a lector at Mass, but if you see a dramatic presentation of it, you can see that clearly not only was St. Paul brilliant intellectually, but he was also tremendously invested with his entire being, including his emotions. But you're right. I mean, if we, if we react only emotionally, then we can become irrational and that can be uh, counterproductive if we're trying to defend the yeah, I think the that faith, presentation which we saw, the, um, you were doing from St. Paul's letters when we had you come all these year, those years ago, was incredible. Because yes, you, you hear his brilliance, you hear the depth of his faith. And I think it's really important for all of us every once in a while to get a whiff of what God can do with a person when they're all in. <laughs> no kidding. And you know, so and, and my plan for that, when um, I decided I wanted to do a St. Paul show uh, before it was the year of St. Paul. And so it became the year of St. Paul, which was 2008, 2009 in the Catholic Church. And so uh, that was um, a blessing for us because then lots of people wanted to book the show. But my first intention was if I could find a script for a one-man show, then I wouldn't have to write the show on St. Paul. So I found a guy in California. And he said, oh, yeah, I've, I've got a script. And I said, well, email me the first page only. Well, you're going to have to see the whole thing. I said, no, just send me the first page because if I write my own, I don't want to even unintentionally plagiarize yours. So he sent me the first page. In his version, St. Paul's in prison and he's addressing the audience and he says, well, why can't we just get along? I mean, why am I in prison for this? This isn't fair. And it's like, oh, man, that is... 
that is anybody but St. Paul. That is not St. Paul. So then I knew I'm going to have to do it. So my goal was, okay, if St. Paul really came to your parish, what would happen? What would it be like? Would people want to stone him as they did more than once? Would he be beaten? Would he be imprisoned? What would it be like to have an apostle that passionate who, who met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and his life turned around completely? What would it be like to have that man in your midst? So that was my goal in that show. And I think we pulled it off because we really seem to make an, an impact on people. And I love well, We got to hang out with you and talked with you for a I long time afterwards. Stuff. And it was just a great experience. So wonderful. Um, yeah. I mean, it's really interesting too, because um, St. Paul, like you said, he was really rational, but he had that marriage of the emotional and the rational that you described um, that we need in our public speaking and in our drama and everything else that God lifted it beyond those two things. But you hear his passion where he could tell the people of Corinth or Thessalonia or whatever, I can't even say it well, um, that they were doing something wrong, but he could also tell them in no uncertain terms how dearly he loved them. Of course, that's as absolutely right, Lisa, and that that is that is clear. And then, and what he'll do is, for instance, in First Corinthians, he really comes on strong. And in the second epistle to the Corinthians, he says, "I'm sorry that I was so much in your face. I'm sorry that I went so much." And then he, of course, goes right back to that, and he's, you know, he's like like slapping them silly so that they get this right. So yeah, you you do get the sense that he did love his fellow Christians and the members of his churches. He, 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 and, and yet he's clearly the most intelligent of the apostles. And I think it's really interesting. There's two things about St. Paul that I wanted to point out. And that is, first of all, um, had he been a member of the original 12, he would have blown the others out of the water because they were just fishermen and tax collectors. And he was, he was one of the most brilliant men who ever lived on the face of the earth. I mean, he is a tremendous intellect he would have blown him away. So I think it was providential that Paul became an apostle only after the death and resurrection of Christ. The other thing um, about Paul is he was a Pharisee. And so he believed in that, um, in that prideful, um, uh, meticulous carrying out the letter of the law, but not necessarily the spirit of the law. And of all the people that Jesus criticized in the Gospels, he's harder on the Pharisees than anybody else. He's much easier on prostitutes and tax collectors than he is on the Pharisees. And, and yet, who becomes really the most powerful apostle after um, the birth of the church? It's this former Pharisee. So we have this, this Pharisee who, who was long gone, really in a way, filled with pride, although he was very devout, but he really thought that he had his act together and that he understood God and what God wanted. And when he met Christ on the road to Damascus, he, he, he knew at that moment that he had been wrong and he'd been wrong enough that he was actually making sure Christians were being persecuted, imprisoned and killed. And he knew that he was, as he says, he's the least of the apostles because um, he persecuted the church of Christ. So, you know, you've got all that going on in one man. What an amazing figure. So dramatic. Yeah, I'm so grateful that he came later subject. too, because I identify with the apostles. You know, I'm just fumbling and bumbling. I mean, I don't mean to characterize them that way. They were great saints, obviously, and I pray to them and ask for their help. But if they didn't make mistakes and if they didn't have fights with each other or have doubts or whatever it was that was so embarrassing that they chose to then report and share with others, then it would be very 
difficult for me to to approach St. Paul, <laughs> you know? Well, and that's the great thing about the communion of saints is we have we have very highly intellectual saints. We have ordinary people as saints. We have some saints who you know, just were, you know, the people who, I mean, who's that one who was just the, um, um, the doorkeeper for uh, one of the, the, he was a Benedictine or something, and all he did his whole life was just answer the door. He was the porter. You know, he never did anything, wrote anything, but he was always just wholly doing a lowly job. So we have this whole panoply of people we can pray to and imitate. And so none of us needs to feel overwhelmed or that we can't quite pull it off. Uh, just so, the richness yeah, of right. our faith is amazing. And I love that that you as an artist, and this gives me great hope for, we know lots of kids out there that are going off to college and losing their faith or whatever it is that's happening, that there can be a moment through you pursuing your authentic passions where you can encounter Christ. You can encounter Christ in a moment of being lifted out of the ordinary in, in stepping into your art. And there are so many stories like that where people are charging along with God right off their radar, intentionally shoving him aside, and yet living authentically and moving towards him. Jesus said, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth, right? But the people who are hot for something, you know, really, whether it's theater or science or whatever it is, God can really work with that. So it's good to see that our children are passionate, even if they may be at this point not quite encountering Christ yet. Oh, I think that's really true. And also, I had mentioned Jordan Peterson. Some of our listeners might know him. He's from the University of Toronto, and he's a secular uh, speaker, and he does not profess to be a Christian. Bishop Barron recently interviewed him, or they interviewed one another on a podcast. It was a very interesting talk. Um, so, But he talks a lot about the Bible. He talks about a lot about mythology. He talks a lot about psychology. But you you learn more about God from this secular man who's searching for the truth than you often hear in many homilies. So I think we do need to keep that in mind. And that's part of what education is. And, and one of the things I love about Homeschool Connections is we are not afraid at Homeschool Connections to approach the truth, whether it's scientific truth, whether it's literary truth, artistic truth, because truth, beauty, and goodness is, is what brings us closer to the creator and to the great mystery of our existence. And so I think we need to understand that there are a lot of people out there who they might have a bad impression of Christianity, mostly because of bad <laughs> Christians. And, you know, we have to understand that they may still, especially young people, they may still be on the journey that's bringing them closer to God, even though they might not articulate it that way. After all, Jesus Christ is the Logos. He is the, and the Logos is the Greek word for intelligibility, rationality, meaning, um, things that's, that, that hold together. He is all of that in incarnate. And so we can't be afraid of learning because learning is what brings us closer to the logos, to the word. And we know the word is the second person of the Trinity, even if our secular neighbors may not. So I think that's why education is so important. And that's why what we're doing at Homeschool Connections is so important. And and everybody gets it. Nobody's saying, oh, we can't learn about that. We can't learn about that. No, we. we I think everybody at Homeschool Connections knows Education always somehow brings mm, us closer. Amen to God. and amen. Um, we're just about wrapped up, but is there any parting? That was so incredible. Uh, thank God we recorded it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But wait a minute, you're recording this. Yeah, no, I thought I was just we're talking to you. Disseminate it. I'm sorry to have tricked you like this, Kevin. But um, <laughs> uh, any <laughs> right. last 
parting words for parents maybe looking for resources or where to begin or just something that comes to you from having talked to parents and kids? What would you like to say to them? Um, you know, there's, um, this is a revolution and it's not going away. When we started doing our murder mystery dinner theater shows, it was just at the time when the wineries were blowing up, as they say, there were mom and pop wineries popping up everywhere all across, including the Midwest where I live. And so, I mean, when we started, there were maybe 30 wineries in Illinois. Now there are probably 180. So, and that all happened within really within about 20 years, but mostly the first 10 years of that period. The same thing is happening for online education. Online education is exploding. So I would say to the parents, don't be afraid to um, make use of it. And I know there are some parents, they use many different resources and their kids might do different programs, some online, some where they get books, some where it's just at home or the kids are maybe doing their own thing. Do whatever works for you and don't be afraid of the online thing because it's not going anywhere. Even colleges, secular colleges are offering, you know, maybe a fourth of their courses are now online courses. And, you know, there are high schools that'll say, oh, yeah, you know, you can come to high school or you can take these courses online or whatever. I mean, it's really the, it's the wave of the future. So Homeschool Connections has been in front of that wave for quite some time. And since we've been around for so long, we really know what we're doing. So I would say, look, you know, don't be afraid of it. Look into it. Your kids will get it. Even if you don't know as parents how to work Moodle, which is what we use for the assignments, how to work Adobe Connect, which we use for the live courses, you might be flummoxed, <laughs> but your kids won't be because they breathe, they breathe that air and they're going to be just fine with doing anything on the internet. So I would just say, I would encourage you, don't be afraid. And, and, and this more and more people are going to homeschool and more and more people are going to use the internet to do it. So we're here for you. And, and, make and use of this that joy, by the way, is just so real. As, as much as you talk to other families that have been at Homeschool Connections, you will find out very quickly how good Walter and Maureen Crawford, who own the company, are to the parents and the children. They're amazing, but they're also amazing no, they're to us good. as instructors. They, they are seamlessly, saintly, kind and generous and brave and, and uh, can't say enough about them. So thank you for your witness on that, Kevin. And also just, you know, here's <laughs> right, the evidence. You go to Homeschool Connections and you get, and this is starting to sound like an advertisement episode, but I can't help myself. You get people like Kevin. You get people who are highly developed <laughs> and passionate in their fields who are also people of faith with a lot of integrity, working with your kids in a way that's very unusual and precious. So um, what a joy. Right. And you may not, you may not get that at your <laughs> yeah. local Catholic school. In fact, you probably won't. I'm sorry to say. At one time, maybe you would have. But these days, I mean, we sent our kids to two different Catholic parochial oh, schools, gosh. and the one was worse than the other. So, and one of the reasons it was so bad was you, you, the, the teachers were secularists, and they, they were, and many of them were anti-Christian. Many of them were really pushing back strongly against the teachings of the church. And when you get that in Catholic schools, what the heck are you going to do? Well, at least we got the internet and we got homeschool connections and we do have people of faith uh, and people who are passionate about what they're teaching. So I agree, Lisa, you and I totally agree on that. Mm, amen and amen. And everybody find Kevin O'Brien, lots more of him and his life and his work and so much great thinking and interacting in videos and just no end of cool stuff at grunky.com. That's 
www.grunky.com. And it's very cool how he got that name for his website. And please stay tuned now for our short feature coming right up. Hi, I'm AJ Catapan. Welcome to Books and Blessings, a place where I get to share with you some of my favorite books for Catholic teens and tweens. Today, I'd like to introduce you to St. Magnus, The Last Viking, a novel by Catholic author Susan Peake. Susan Peake's specialty is writing action-packed adventure stories based on the lives of some lesser-known saints, and her YA novel based on the life of St. Magnus is no exception. In the 11th century, Magnus Erlinson became the second son to one of the two rulers of the Orkney Islands just north of mainland Scotland. And no, you didn't hear wrong. I said two rulers, not one. Due to the strange change his grandfather made to his will on his deathbed, Magnus' father and uncle are co-rulers of the Orkney Islands. And when they die, Magnus' older brother and cousin are set to be co-rulers. However, Magnus' cousin, Hakan, has other plans. He wants to rule on his own without Magnus' older brother ruling beside him. A rash decision on Hakan's part leads him to being banished from the kingdom. But he blames Magnus, not his own violent actions, for his exile. As for himself, Magnus is a brave young man who wants all men to forgive each other's wrongdoings and turn their hearts to God. His only desire is to bring peace to his homeland, but that's not going to be easy when Hakan has his heart set on revenge. Susan Peake's tale is a fast-paced thriller that moves from one battle scene to the next. With fights involving swords and axes in and around Scotland, I couldn't help but picture the movie Braveheart while I read this. However, unlike Mel Gibson's movie, the main character in Susan Peake's novel is a pious young man who would rather spend his time in prayer than in battle. Nonetheless, Magnus is a brave soldier who isn't afraid to take up his sword when it's time to defend his family and his homeland. Susan Peake's novel, St. Magnus, The Last Viking, is not a quiet book of saintly virtues but rather a deeply engrossing tale of how one might live a life of prayer and penance, even in the midst of heroic action. St. Magnus the Last Viking has been awarded the Catholic Writers Guild Seal of Approval and is available in both English and Spanish. To see more book suggestions, visit my website at ajcatapan.com. There you can also learn about my own books for young readers, including my middle grade novel, Seven Riddles to Nowhere, and my award-winning YA novel, Angelhood which has been called a teen version of It's a Wonderful Life. Thanks for joining me on Books and Blessings. Be sure to find me online on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or on my website, ajcatapan.com. Until next time, happy reading. And that's our show for today. Our program is sponsored by homeschoolconnections.com. Be sure to subscribe to Homeschooling Saints and leave us an honest review. God bless you, and thank you for joining us.